0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. All right, let's go to Daniel chapter four. Y'all ready for this? There was a lady that went and she asked to meet with her pastor and he was like, yeah, sure. And so she comes in, goes back. She's like, I just need some counseling today. And he's like, well, what's going on? And she said, well, you know, I've been coming here for a long time and every Sunday we get together and I just look around and I can't help but notice that I'm the most beautiful woman in the church and I don't know how to overcome this sin in my life. And he was like, well, I mean, it's a sin for sure, but I think it's more so a mistake. <laughs> Burn. All right, hold that one in your mind. <laughs> Y'all remember Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali. Maybe, maybe the greatest boxer of all time, maybe. You don't have to debate me right now uh, on that. There is a story, I don't know if it's true, but there's a story out there about this guy. So he's like in the height of his fame and he was getting on a flight and he gets on the flight and he sits down and after a while, you know, you have to fasten your belts, right? So he's just sitting there, belt not fastened. And so the stewardess walks up and says, I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to fasten your belt. And he goes, Superman don't need no belt <laughs> And she goes, well, Superman don't need no plane either. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if Muhammad Ali knew that was coming, but I love the zing, right? Why do I open with those two stories? Here's why. Might have been a little bit of pride involved in both. What do you think? What do you think? Now, I bring that up because when we get into Daniel chapter four, we're gonna be talking about Nebuchadnezzar again, but we're finding that there is a sin that's kind of deeply embedded in this guy. He doesn't actually see it for what it is, and it's the sin of pride. So with that in mind, a couple of things that, that I, wanna, I wanna point out. I love this quote by Rebecca DeYoung. She wrote a book called Glittering Vices. And she said this, she said, "'When we compare what celebrities are well-known for "'and what our heroes are admired for, "'we find a chasm between people whose glory "'far outstrips the value of the goods "'for which they receive it, "'and the people's, people whose worth far outstrips any glory than they will ever receive. Isn't that true? Uh, We have people that have a disproportionate amount of attention that is given to them for the goods that they actually provide. And then we have people that are often behind the scenes, they're in the quiet, that are doing literally world-changing things and you would never know it. She's absolutely right. I want to point this out up front. There is a kind of pride that God hates, and then there's a kind of pride over a job well done. And scripture actually makes a distinction between those two. Look at Proverbs 8:13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. So God's not for it when what you got is a heart that is swelled up about yourself. But compare that to Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul says, let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. That's another way of saying, hey, here's some work that we did, and we did that really well and you celebrate that, that's a good thing. Now, what you're not doing is expecting everybody else to celebrate you for it, but it's like you can look at it and in an honest moment say, hey, we did that well, that's good, we should keep doing those kinds of things. See, scripture actually makes a distinction between those two things. Now, hold that in your mind while I give you a little bit of background, just a little bit of a reminder about this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the ancient world. Uh, His capital was Babylon. Really, Babylon was the capital of the world at the time. It spanned, Babylon spanned on um, on both sides of the Euphrates River. Uh, Archeologists have actually found that he was able to dig a tunnel from one side of the Euphrates all the way to the other side of the Euphrates. And that wasn't like last year. We're talking in the ancient world. Can you agree with me that that is impressive? That is impressive. Uh, when uh, Herodotus, the historian, went into Babylon, he was so blown away by it because he talked about all of the gold and the silver. He said, literally, the city shines because of all the gold and the silver that was there. You might actually remember it because of its hanging gardens, one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. There were 400-foot waterfalls by Nebuchadnezzar's palace. I've decided to install that at my house this week. Isn't that impressive? Impressive. It's amazing. Around the city, just around the city, there were, there were three huge walls that made the city almost impossible to get to. I mean, this guy was able to get stuff done. He's impressive. Now, I give you that background so that you can understand what's going on in this story. Let's jump into Daniel chapter four. I'll start reading in verse one. Here's the way it begins. It says, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I'm pleased to tell you about the miracles and the wonders the most high God has done for me. This sounds like a pretty good start, what do you think? How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And then you look at verse five. I had a dream, he said, and it frightened me. Well, we've seen that before, haven't we? You think about a guy that's got all the wealth that you can imagine. He's got these walls that are protecting him and God has a way. He's already had a dream before that when it happened, he says, what does that even mean? And so he calls all the wise men in to interpret it for him and his best people couldn't figure it out. Mm, But there was a guy named Daniel, you remember him? And Daniel was able to give him an interpretation of the dream. Well, you fast forward a little bit and he's having another dream. You think God's trying to get to this guy or what? That's what's going on. So as was his custom, He calls in all the wise men of Babylon again to give him an interpretation. None of them can do it. I'm gonna throw this out them. A lot of them didn't want to do it. In case you haven't noticed this about Nebuchadnezzar, every time he calls people in, he's like, I'm about to kill everybody. Well, who who wants to go get around that guy? And probably with this, he's like, I had another dream. And all of his wise men are like, oh my gosh, this guy's gotta stop dreaming. Because every time he has a dream, he's like, who's gonna give the interpretation of the dream? He's like, and if it's not us, he's like, somebody's about to die. We're about to have another die moment. At least that's the way it looks to them. So they're like, I don't think I want to do this. So who does it? Well, Daniel. I mean, look at verse eight. Finally, Daniel named Belteshazzar. Remember he renamed him. He gave him a Babylonian name. Daniel named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, the Babylonian one. The spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before him and I told him the dream. There was a tree in the middle of the earth and it was very tall. Look at verse 11. Its top reached to the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, the fruit abundant, and on it was food for everybody. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches and every creature was fed from it. But then, Nebuchadnezzar says, while I was admiring this tree, a messenger drops down from heaven and proclaims this. Look at verse 14. Cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and let and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human beings. Kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. You think you're high? I can set the lowliest people over you. Now, notice in verse 19, it says that when Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel his dream, it says that Daniel was deeply troubled. Look at it, it says, My Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the reason I find that interesting is because you have Nebuchadnezzar that has actually pulled Daniel's people into servitude to him, remember? I mean, what happened is is you have the people of God were brought in under judgment by God. The Babylonians were the means by which God did it. That's what's going on. And so you would sit there and think, okay, how would you view the Babylonians? And the answer is, is an oppressor. I mean, it's what we're doing here. You brought me in. You made me learn your language. You made me learn who your gods are. Told me I couldn't worship my God. I gotta worship yours. How much are you gonna like somebody like that? But it seems what's going on in Daniel chapter four, Daniel has actually grown an affection for this guy. It's like, I see, I hear the dream. He hasn't even told him what's going on yet. And he says, I really wish this wasn't about you. I really wish that. Here's what I think is going on, and one person said it really well. He said, it appears that Daniel, by this point, has learned to genuinely love King Nebuchadnezzar, not to admire him or to approve all of his practices, far from it, but to love him as a person. Daniel had obeyed God's command that, you, by the way, you saw this before in Jeremiah 29. It's like, set up your houses there, multiply there, be among the people there, win their favor as you are there. Seems like Daniel has done that. Nebuchadnezzar Really likes Daniel and trusts him. I'd ask you this, though Is this how you would feel about somebody around you that might be your Babylonian? Now, I'm gonna guess this. You're probably not under the oppression of a Babylonian king right now, but it might be somebody that you work with. Uh, They are just, they are difficult to say the least. They don't value the things that you value. They don't worship God the way that you worship God. In fact, they probably mock you for it. That's probably your Nebuchadnezzar. You get the idea? And what you have with Daniel in response to that is not, I see you necessarily as just an enemy, but he's grown to see him as a friend. It shows us something. You can have sincere and deeply profound disagreements with people and, shockingly, still care for each other. That can actually happen. So Daniel says this. He's like, so tell me, tell me what's up with the dream. And Daniel, uh, Daniel says, don't make me interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar, who had learned to trust Daniel, notice what he says in verse 19. Belteshazzar, remember, just his Babylonian name, Daniel's Babylonian name. He says, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Well, boy, that's a twist, isn't it? Because every time before it was interpret it and I'm probably gonna kill you. Now it's interpreted It's like, don't freak out. Just tell me what it's, tell me what it means. What does it mean? And so Daniel in verse 22, he says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. You're the tree. And like the tree, you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the end of the earth. But God has issued a decree from heaven that because of your pride, you, like this tree, are going to be cut down. And look at verse 25. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You'll feed on grass like cattle, be drenched with dew from the sky. Meaning you'll be living out in the sticks, not in this palace. And it'll happen for seven periods of time. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and He gives them to anyone He wants. And as for the command to leave the tree's stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules, not you. Heaven rules. Notice what Daniel is doing. He is pleading with Nebuchadnezzar. Have you caught that? He's begging this guy, he's begging him to repent. He's basically saying, look at verse 27. Therefore, he said, may the king heed my advice. It's like, listen to me. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. And then he says this, perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. It's like, that's not what you do it for, but maybe God would bless you even more if you do do with the good things, the right thing, but you're not. He's like, stop, do it differently. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? You would like to think. At this moment, he goes, you know what, Danny? You're right. You're right. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, look at verse 29. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, admiring its power and beauty, his heart filling with a swelling sense of pride over everything he had done. In verse 30, here's what he says. Is this not Babylon, the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Oh man. It goes on though, it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven and you know it's about to get bad. While he's still talking, this is the Dr. Evil moment. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the most high rulers over human kingdoms and he gives to them anyone he wants. And at that very moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. It's like, I'm not giving you a grace period anymore. You've had it. You've had that. Now you're going to see judgment. And so it happened. For seven periods of time, he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky. Until, as Daniel 4 goes on, until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws, this is getting bad. Guy doesn't look so good anymore, does he? That's how you also know that eagles are bald. They have to have to part their feathers over, I'm kidding. We're not exactly sure what the seven periods of time means. Probably it means something like this. The number seven in scripture is symbolic. It means something. It represents something. Probably what it means, he says, you'll be given over for seven periods of time is until it has done what it was meant to do. It's a time. It's meant to be a time that is fulfilled. It's meant to be a talk. Speak of time that is whole or complete. How long will you be given over to this? Until the job's done. Until the job is done, you're going to look like this. Now. I did a little bit of research, and I don't know if you know this, but there is a mental disorder called boanthropy. Have you heard of that? It's actually the belief, or it's a mental condition, that while rare, the victim believes that they are a cow. This is true. Uh, The first known diagnosed case of boanthropy was in 1946. And as I was reading that this week, I was like, that's not the first known case of boanthropy. We got one way before this, it's this guy. Let's have a little bit of fun, not at his expense, but let's just have a little bit of fun with the situation here. We're talking about pride and we're talking about how pride can be incredibly destructive to us. So I was taking a look. Did you know that there are 95 million selfies taken every day? Did you know that? 95 million, friends, that's a lot. Uh, There are a thousand selfies dropped on Instagram every second of every day. Uh, Millennials, are y'all out there this morning? Be proud about it. Y'all are on track to take 25,000 selfies in your life. In 2015, studies have been done. In 2015, more people died from from selfies than shark attacks. (laughs) That was kind of interesting to read. And it made me think this, there's Shark Week every year. I think on National Geographic, if I remember right, on Nat Geo. There's shark week, like every July. And I thought, cancel that and do selfie week. It's gonna be so much more interesting. And here's why. In a, a period of less than two years, 57 people drowned while they were taking selfies. There was a man in China that was dragged underwater by a walrus while he was taking a selfie. All right, there's one for you. There was also a Russian man who was posing with a grenade. And that was the last selfie that he ever took. Those are a couple of examples. Okay, here's the point, here's the point. I want you to think about Nebuchadnezzar for just a little bit. If anyone should have felt secure about the future, it should have been that guy. Is that fair? If anyone should have felt secure about his future, it was that guy. He had the greatest military in the world. So it's like, who's gonna come and attack me? Yeah, well, uh, probably not y'all. Because if you do, you're gonna get whooped. Literally no army in the world was even trying to. He can't be fired. I mean, he's a ruling monarch. So he's got job security. That's great. He can't go bankrupt. He is the bank. That's great. Here's the thing though. Both you and I know this. God has a way. He has a way. It might not be the usual stuff but he has a way. He got to him through a dream before, and guess what? It works. It's like, I'm gonna get to you through a dream again. You're about to go down. Okay, now, he gave him the out, right? Daniel gave him the opt-out. It doesn't have to look like this, but hold on, because here's what it got me thinking about. How do I know? How do I know? This is the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, a man of profoundly entrenched pride, and it got me wondering, how would I know that pride has a hold on me? I'm gonna give you a couple of thoughts here. Feel free to get your phone out and take a picture. Here's one, you take things personally. And I don't mean just things, I mean everything. Everything is taken personally. See, this is, this is, this is the problem with pride. Even though others are speaking the truth for your good, you get angry because it gets in the way of the image that you want to believe about yourself. Think about that for a second. You take things personally. You will not receive a good and godly correction because you're above it. You can't laugh about your personal kind of peccadilloes, even though they're hilarious. Why? Because of how you want to view yourself. You can take everything personally. Here's another one. Your feelings are the most reasonable because it's me. And everything is about my feelings. You interpret everything through your feelings. You don't think about other people's feelings. Maybe you have a problem with pride. Your desires and wants are the most important. Pride, by the way, leads to entitlement. Humility leads to gratitude. Your desires, your wants are the most important. Now think about this with me for just a second. How well do you think a marriage will go if pride is in the heart in the marriage? Good or not good? You think about the vows that you make. When you stand, well, if I'm fishing it, before me, but really before God, you're making vows to one another, this is the person that I'm going to be for you. This is the moment where in humility, you're saying, I'm going to keep you before myself. This is what I'm going to do. Husband to wife and wife to husband. That, by the way, if it's really honored, like if the vows are really honored, those kinds of relationships can flourish and they're beautiful, but when pride seeps in, it's like, no, you're here for me. Doesn't work. How about this? The other person needs to apologize and change, always. You know why? It's because they're always wrong, that's why. In fact, your flaws aren't that bad, but the other person's vices are huge. Maybe pride has gotten a hold of your heart. Here's another one. While I've been talking, you've been thinking of other people that you thought needed to hear this but not yourself. Maybe pride has gotten into your heart. I just wish that such and so were here today. Oh, this would have been so good for them. Well, it's probably good for you too. Just throwing that out there. How do I know that pride has a hold on me? These are some pretty good indicators. But it got me also thinking about this. How do I know that I'm getting over pride? How do I know that? And the answer is this. When you know how much of a grip that it actually has on you. That's the beginning of it. This has a hold on me. This has a grip on me. You're actually willing to call it what it is. Call it out for what it is. And to say it's enough. It's enough. I mean, you've become the Nebuchadnezzar in the story at this point. And you're expecting everybody to constantly heap worship and praise on you. And when you're not getting it, you blow up. This is a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Tim Keller wrote a work called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and in it he was quoting from C.S. Lewis, and I just wanted to share this with you. Here's what Tim Keller said. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them and thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. It's like even in the statement, who are they focused on? Themselves. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, meaning like just I gotta constantly rip myself down It is thinking of myself less, just I'm not thinking about myself all the time. I'm not obsessing about myself all the time. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. If I'm in this room with these people, does that like make me look good? Do I wanna be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience every conversation with myself. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. So does everybody have the same feelings you do? It's probably because, or you feel that way. It's probably because you are so wrapped up in yourself that you can't comprehend somebody feeling differently than you. These are all characteristics that pride has come in and it's gotta die. Either it dies or it will kill you. So how how do we get over it? We know what it is. We know how to look for it. We we know how it can lose its grip on us. And it's like this. A couple of thoughts for you this morning. Here's one. Put someone ahead of yourself every day. Put someone ahead of yourself every day. Don't call the news about it either, thank you. Just put someone ahead. Genuinely learn to love and serve people like Jesus loved and served people. It will break your pride. For some of you, you sit out there and you go, you know, if I could just like see and understand everything, then maybe I would live a different way. Or how about this? Maybe follow what Jesus told you to do and you'll actually start to see things a different way. Once you actually live it, maybe then you can start to see it Put someone ahead of yourself every day. Husband, bless your wife. Wife, bless your husband. Why? Just to bless. Not for a return, but just to bless. Bless your children. Children, bless your parents. Parenting is hard. Bless your parents. Thank them for what they do. Thank your friends and bless your friends. Do something kind for them. Why? Because it's what Jesus does. That's why. And it has a way of killing the pride that has so captured your heart. Look at First Timothy six seventeen and 18. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Boy, did Nebuchadnezzar figure out something about that. But on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be willing to share. Do that. It will change you. If you notice in verse uh, 27 of Daniel 4, Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar. He says, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. It's not enough just to have all the good things, but do what is right with the good things. Do what is right with them. It's significant, by the way, that Daniel puts repentance in terms of a new attitude toward people that need mercy. Did you catch that? You have a whole new attitude toward people who need mercy. And here's why. It's because a sure sign of pride is a callousness toward the needs of other people. If you, feel like, if you feel like you are responsible for everything in your life and you feel like you have no one to thank but yourself for everything that you have in your life, then you have no natural compassion for people who need mercy from you. You have none. By the way, and here's the thing about pride, you believe that you're a self-made person and you're not, you're not. That is how pervasive this is. Every good and perfect gift is from above. You didn't create it, he gave it. But we believe, our, we believe it when we say it to ourselves. That's when you know it has a hold on your heart. However, if you realize how much you owe God, your heart naturally goes to mercy and grace. It's where his heart went to you, and it's where his heart went to me. Here's another way of breaking the hold of pride. How about give anonymously? Just give anonymously. Don't put your name on it. Just give. Don't need credit. Don't need recognition. But what that does mean is we need repentance. You remember, this is what Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar to, and Nebuchadnezzar was like, I mean, I hear you, but I'll pass. And then he got to then he got to have boanthropy for seven periods of time, you know. I don't want you to have boanthropy, people. That's why we're talking about it. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Turn and walk a different way. This morning he's telling you the same thing. If pride has captured your heart, turn and walk a different way. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, could not see God. If you are like Nebuchadnezzar, you can't either you can't your eyes are not fixed in a position where you could see him and think about nebuchadnezzar even though he had a prophet standing in front of him relaying the message of god to him not only could he not see god he couldn't hear him either that is how much pride had a hold of his life it's time to look up do you remember that little phrase in daniel chapter 4 verse 26 if if you just kind of blast through the passage you're like nope but it actually means something. After everything is torn down, there's this verse 26 where it said, leave the stump with its roots. Leave the stump with its roots. It's kind of weird, isn't it? But here why, here's why that verse is there, is because a stump with roots can grow again. A stump with roots can grow again. There's hope in this. There's judgment in this. But Nebuchadnezzar, There's hope. There's hope. I want you to notice Nebuchadnezzar's change. And this is actually, I love this part of Daniel four because it seems like eventually after a bout of boanthropy, he gets it. He says, the most high God lives forever. He says that in verse 34. And if you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar's flatterers, you know, the people that were like, oh, praise to you. You're amazing. All of those people, they had always greeted him with, oh king, live forever. And now Nebuchadnezzar was saying, Now he's the king, and his kingdom is forever. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.